0: This is God's word, our scripture today. In Ephesians four twenty-five to thirty-two. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead. He is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, anger, And wrath, shouting and slander, be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. May God richly bless the reading of his word.
1: Thank you, Elder Sand. Dear friends, how has anger touched your life? How has anger shaped you, molded you? Some of us grew up in households where anger was expressed in very damaging and destructive ways. Your childhood consisted of slammed doors, broken dishes, screaming, yelling, physical altercations. Others of us grew up in households where anger was not fiery hot, but more like icy cold. Not through yelling, but a mom who gave you the silent treatment for days on end. Not by slamming doors, but a father who withheld affection from you and was clearly disappointed in you. Others of us grew up in households where any sign or expression of anger was not tolerated. To be angry was a sign of disrespect. To be angry was considered unchristian. And so you were disciplined for being angry, and you learned to stifle and suppress your anger to the point where today, you may not even realize it when you're angry. And if you do realize it, you have no idea what to do with it. I think it's safe to say that for most of us here, we have a dysfunctional relationship with anger. We don't know how to control it. We're controlled by it. We don't know how to process it. We don't know how to express it in healthy biblical ways. Well, in today's passage, Paul talks about anger and gives us some helpful instruction. But before we dive into let me first make a few comments about our passage as a whole, because he does address more than just anger. In verses 25 through 32, Paul continues to elaborate on the various practices that characterize the Christian life. And he continues what he does, From last week, from the previous passage, he continues this pattern of putting off and putting on. So, for example, in verse 25, he tells us to put off lying. All falsehoods, all deceit should be put away from you. Instead, put on speaking the truth, especially within the body of Christ. And then in verse 28, he tells us to put off stealing. Instead of stealing, you need to put on working hard with your hands so that you can provide for those who are in need. And then in verse 29, he tells us to put off foul language. That word translated as foul is often used to describe fish. Fish that has gotten rotten. And so just as we would not entertain putting rotten food in our mouths, so too, we should not allow rotten words to come out of our mouths. Instead, Paul instructs us to speak edifying words that build up the body. And so in each example, you see this pattern of putting off sinful uh, actions and putting on virtuous behavior. What is more, you also realize just how sensitive Paul is to our horizontal relationships. Paul is not simply concerned about the impact of our actions upon God, he's also concerned about the impact of our actions upon one another, which is why he says, be honest, because it will cultivate healthy relationships in the church Work hard so that you can provide for the needs of others. Speak edifying words so that you can build other people up. For Paul, to love God cannot be separated from loving neighbor. Now, let's talk about anger. In verse 26, Paul addresses a common misconception. And that common misconception is that all anger is sinful and wrong. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. He actually commands us to be angry and he tells us it's possible to be angry and not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. It's righteous, virtuous to be angry at injustice, cruelty, and the mockery of God's name, when someone spreads lies about you, when someone robs you, when someone threatens the safety of your loved ones, it is not only permissible to be angry in those moments, but virtuous. Being a Christian does not mean that we exist in a Zen-like state where our souls are never bothered or troubled by what happens around us. No, outrage is sometimes the right response to the brokenness and evil of this world. Righteous anger can be harnessed to address deep injustices righteous anger can be used to help you protect those you love just look at the civil rights movement the good that it accomplished that movement was in large part fueled by righteous anger i share this because some of us may prematurely squash and suppress all anger we assume that Any trace of anger is sinful and wrong. I know this is something that I struggle with. When I feel angry, my automatic instinct is to suppress it or to talk myself out of it. Oftentimes, I gaslight myself and say, no, Jeff, you should not be angry. You're angry for the wrong reason. And I just start talking to myself. And I rob myself of the good that that anger could produce in me, whether it's confronting a wrong or speaking out against injustice. Having said that, while it's possible to be angry and not sin, Paul quickly follows up his statement by reminding us that anger is actually really volatile. He says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now let me address a common misconception about that verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. For some reason I thought, and this is early on in our marriage, that it meant that any conflict must be fully addressed and satisfied before you go to bed. And so... As all couples do, we get into a fight, and we'll hash it out all night long. But we know what happens. The later you stay up, the more tired you get, and the more tired you get, the more irrational you become, and you end up not really resolving anything. If anything, it becomes a war of attrition, where the person who is most tired says, fine, you win, I want to go to bed. But Paul doesn't say don't let the sun go down on your conflict. He says don't let the sun go down on your anger. And so couples, there are times where it may be a good idea for you to say, let's sleep on this and resume tomorrow when we're well-rested, when we're not riled up and can address each other's grievances in a sober, edifying manner. What Paul is warning us about is the volatility of anger. Though anger can start off righteous, it rarely remains righteous. Anger is like handling fire. When fire is in the fireplace, when it's on the stove, when it's contained, it can be extremely effective and useful. Unfortunately, our hearts are not like a fireplace. It's more like the dry brush on the Portola Hills with the Santa Anas blowing. Super hard to control. What often happens is that righteous anger morphs into unbridled hate. It's right to get angry when someone cuts you off on the freeway. It's wrong, however, when you begin to think evil thoughts and wish that car gets into a car accident. It's right to get angry when you discover that someone is gossiping about you. It's wrong, however, when you begin to want vengeance and you start gossiping about them. There's a huge difference, parents, between disciplining out of love, disciplining out of anger, The goal of love is to instruct, heal, and restore. The goal of unrighteous anger is to punish and get revenge. How often have I heard the phrase, I am just teaching him a lesson. The reality is the only lesson you're teaching is don't mess with me. The only lesson you have in mind is I'm going to get back at you for what you've done to me. That's not healing. That's not restorative. That damages relationship. The reason why anger is so volatile is because anger is the devil's playground. Paul reminds us in verse 27 that, this, that Satan has home court advantage when we're angry. He knows how weak we are, how easily manipulated we are. And I think one of the reasons why Satan loves to capitalize on our anger is because anger is one of those communally destructive sins. Unrighteous anger does more than just impact us but it impacts those closest to us. If you've been to Yellowstone, you've seen those geysers where scalding hot water goes to the sky, but then it will also burn anyone who draws too close. You see, when we're angry, it not only shapes our actions, but it also has the power to shape our perceptions. When you're angry, it doesn't just bring out the worst in you, but oftentimes, it seeks out the worst in others. What do I mean? When you get worked up, when you're angry at an offense, your mind starts villainizing usually the one who hurt you. All of a sudden, you forget all the good that they've done or are capable of and you hone in on everything wrong about that person. And you begin to meditate and assassinate their character. You devalue them in your minds and you paint the worst possible picture of your opponent. And so no longer is that person someone created in the image of God. No longer is that someone, someone who Jesus laid his life down for. No longer is that person your beloved wife or husband or son or daughter. That person has become an enemy in your mind. That's what anger does. It distorts your perceptions and you tell yourself the worst possible story Reminded me of a story my wife told that when she was driving, uh, the the cars were stuck because one of the cars up front uh, was having trouble merging into the traffic. It was going really slow, and everyone was honking and yelling. And so this car just slowly went to the side of the road and parked. And as my wife drove by, she looked in. She saw a shaking grandmother overwhelmed with fear at what's going on. I guarantee those cars that were yelling and honking the horn were painting a worst possible picture of that driver. He or she must be talking on the phone. He or she must be an idiot, must be stupid. And yet, how wrong of a picture, a story, is that of what was really going on? As you can see, unbridled anger is communally destructive. It sets off a bomb in our relationships. as It makes enemies of friends. It makes enemies of loved ones. And I believe this is why Paul mentions the devil here in verse 27. He's reminding us of our, who our true enemy is. And sometimes in the middle of a fight, we might have to go so far as to say, you are not my enemy. Satan is. He's trying to sabotage us. And we need to identify who's really the threat. And that's what Paul does for us here. Unrighteous anger is not only volatile and communally destructive, it's also highly corrosive. Like a powerful acid, unrighteous anger corrodes and eats away at our souls. If you've ever swapped out an old battery, or if you've ever suffered from an ulcer, you know what acid can do to you over a long period of time. When we think of an angry person, we often think of the belligerent drunk And yet what often gets overlooked is the calm, cool person who smile's on the outside, who's well-dressed, and yet whose heart is seething with poisonous hatred. This is why Paul mentions bitterness in verse 31. He says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, Bitterness is what happens when anger is untreated. Bitterness is what happens when you nurse that grudge and ruminate over the past. To be bitter is to be far worse than angry, because anger is an emotion while bitterness is a condition. Bitterness is a state of being where all joy, happiness, and peace is sucked out of you, and all that remains is an internal grumbling. Now, given the volatility and the communal destructiveness and the corrosiveness of anger, you would think it would be easy and wise for you and I to avoid unrighteous anger and not get caught up with it. That it's simply a matter of mindfulness or willpower to help us navigate life and avoid these minds. But it's not that easy, is it? I'm sure this is not the first time You've heard a sermon about the destructive effects of anger, and yet we still stumble into it all the time. Thankfully, Paul doesn't just point out anger and its effects. He also provides us with some powerful prescriptions. First prescription is seen in verse 30. He tells us, don't grieve. God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Such a thought immediately jumps out at us. Because oftentimes when we think of the Holy Spirit, we don't think of a person, do we? We oftentimes associate the Holy Spirit with an impersonal force or an inanimate presence, but by telling us that the Holy Spirit grieves by our sins, he's reminding us that the Holy Spirit is a person who has feelings. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Trinity has eternally existed in harmonious love, joy, and mutual affection. Think of the best of marriages. Think of the best of friends and multiply that by infinity as far as the great joy each person of the Godhead derive from one another. And they've been experiencing this bliss for eternity on end. Love, joy, affection, peace is all that the Trinity has ever known. So you can imagine how jarring it must be for the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to witness and see and feel our hatred for someone else. It's antithetical to who the Spirit is and all that he represents and all that he's ever known. I picture a young child Cowering in her room, hearing mom and dad screaming at each other. It's just like so jarring. Mom and dad's supposed to love one another. And so Paul reminds us that we are not alone, that as Christians, this Holy Spirit dwells in us. And that our unrighteous anger grieves the spirit. The second prescription Paul gives us is found in verse 32, where Paul exhorts us to forgive one another. Forgiveness is the best weapon we can wield against bitterness and resentment. Or let me put it negatively. If you want to be resentful, if you like the taste of bitterness, if you want to remain imprisoned by the past, if you want all joy and peace to be sucked out of your life, then don't forgive. Hold on to your anger. Keep replaying the past. but Jeff, you don't understand. You don't know what's happened to me. Indeed, forgiveness can be the most difficult thing you will ever do in this life. For some people, forgiveness is like an F word. Talk about jarring, the idea of forgiving so-and-so. mm That doesn't work with me. But perhaps some of our difficulties with forgiveness stem from a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. You see, some people mistakenly believe that forgiving someone means letting them off the hook. That when we forgive someone, it's communicating to the perpetrator, what you did to me is okay. What you did to me... I can excuse. But that's not forgiveness. Of course you can't forgive if you think it means letting go of justice. But forgiveness is not trampling the principles of justice. It's not minimizing sin or saying that what they did is okay. When you forgive someone, you're not saying that their actions are any less evil. What you're doing is this. You're letting go the reins of justice and letting God take care of justice for you. You're telling the person, I choose not to hurt you for hurting me. I'm going to let go of my right to get vengeance. Why? Because I believe in a God who is perfectly just and will hold, hold everyone accountable at the end of the day. And so I don't have to be judge and jury. I don't have to be the one who inflicts your sentence. I'm going to leave that into the hands of God. That's what forgiveness is. Of course, the irony of it all is that in our desire to punish someone, To give them their sentence, we end up not punishing them, but we punish ourselves. As we think murderous thoughts, as we hold on to the injustice, it eats away at our souls while they go on living their lives. As I mentioned before, if you want to be set free, you need to let go and let God You need to trust that God is just, that he will use the states, he will use the courts, and even if those means fail, he will, in his own way and his own timing, hold that person accountable. This is why Paul's words in verse 30 are important After telling us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, he goes on to say, and these are usually throwaway words that we gloss over, you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. He reminds us of the day of redemption, the day where God will make all things new, the day where God will right all wrongs. And in case we doubt that day will ever come, he says, the Holy Spirit, which we have, marks as a guarantee that that day of judgment will come. Now, if you are here this morning and you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in a final judgment, then I could understand why you would refuse to let go of your anger. Because if you're not going to punish the person, no one will. And you're going to get eaten up with the thought that so-and-so may actually get away with what they've done. But as Christians, we don't have that fear. We can trust in God and give Him the reins of justice while we can forgive, move on, and move forward with our lives. Now, I do want to add a couple qualifications here when it comes to forgiveness, because oftentimes it's misunderstood and abused. When it comes to forgiveness, I think timeliness is important. I think as Christians, we are way too hasty in applying forgiveness way too soon. Before we're ever even able to really process the injustice before we're able to really make sense of what actually happened before we understand the gravity of the sin committed against us someone says you need to forgive and we're like whoa i'm reminded of a podcast i recently listened to where in the short-term team one of the sisters discovered that a hidden camera was set up in the bathroom by one of the teammates bomb blew up, total betrayal of privacy, trust, violation, I mean, so forth and so on. And when she went to the local pastor, in the immediate aftermath of that horrific discovery, the first thing the pastor said to her was, you need to learn to forgive. When ill-timed, forgiveness can actually be weaponized to inflict a double wound. That while we're dealing with the wounds from the original sin, now we've got another layer of feeling guilty for not being able to forgive. Yes, forgiveness is absolutely essential in our recovery and our health and healing, but in its due time. That's the first qualification. second one that I I, I need to say is that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. People confuse the two all the time. They say, well, if I forgive so-and-so, does it mean that I need to move back in with my abusive husband? No. Forgiveness only requires one party, the victim. To make the conscious choice, I will not punish so-and-so for hurting me. Forgiveness can actually be done without the other party even knowing you've forgiven him or her. Reconciliation, however, requires the cooperation of both parties, mainly the repentance of the offender. Especially in situations where you are at danger and your safety is at risk, reconciliation is actually not advisable. We want you to forgive, but don't reconcile. So those two... Uh, qualifications I want to leave with you. Last but not least, in addition to helping us remember that we grieve the Spirit with our unrighteous anger, in addition to being able to forgive and move forward, the third prescription that helps us in our fight against unrighteous anger is the gospel. Paul ends the passage by pointing us to the cross. He says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. He tells us that we can forgive because we are forgiven. He reminds us of the principle that forgiven people are forgiving people. If anyone has a right to punish us, if anyone has a right to condemn us, it is God, our holy and righteous God. And whatever offenses have been committed against you and me, no matter how grievous they may be, they pale in comparison to the many afflictions we have committed against our loving Father. The betrayal the spiritual adultery, the times we've turned our backs on him, the times we've grieved him, flaunted our sin before his very presence. And yet God forgave us. And as Christians, forgiveness is at the core of our own stories, is it not it's central to our identity. As Christians, we are the most forgiven people in the world because every sin we've ever committed has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And when you're able to grasp the gravity and the wonder, the gravity of your sin and the wonder of God's grace, it melts our hearts and overflows with a desire to extend that same forgiveness to others. It's hard to hold on to that sin, hold on to your anger when you realize what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And so the gospel is not only the source of our forgiveness, but it's also where we're empowered to forgive. Dear friends, I share this sermon with a bit of fear and trembling because I know there are a lot of stories of deep hurt here in this room. Forgiveness is a process, and it's hard. So I encourage you that if you find yourself still trapped by the injustice of what's been done to you, I encourage you to reach out. Sometimes it takes a pastor, a friend, a life group to help you process these things, to pray for you and give you counsel and help you move forward. Community is one of the great things assets god has given us and with that in mind i'm going to invite up our sister trish to come forward and this is going to be a little bit of a change of gears to come forward and share
2: oh okay it's on I'm a little nervous, so I appreciate the clapping, although likely not as nervous as Pastor Lewis or the tech team because uh, they haven't pre-reviewed what I'm going to say, so we'll see if this makes the recording. Um, but uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Tricia Saul, and today I wanted to share with you my experience of belonging in the context of new life. As I was preparing for this, I looked up the definition of belonging. The Cambridge Dictionary defines belonging as a feeling of being happy or comfortable as part of a particular group and having good relationship with team, with other members of the group because they welcome you and accept you. And just reading that makes me smile who doesn't want to belong. Uh, Since coming here in 2019, I have learned that every great lesson has three points. This led, yes, that's right, this led to the three stories I will share in the next 30 minutes. Just kidding. I know I am between you guys and lunch, um, although I am also between you guys and your children, so it'll be a happy medium. Um, before I begin on point one, I, I know, especially in Orange County, we are such busy people. Um, and, and so as you're kind of reading uh, and hearing about my journey, or listening to my journey, rather, um, I get it. I get it, and so uh, we'll start with point one. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. We moved to Irvine in 2017 because I was accepted in a PhD program at UCI. For about a year, we watched our old church online. Uh, Then one day I was walking the dogs in the neighborhood and I saw the New Life Irvine signs up. Uh, We Googled it and found out it was a church and we decided to attend one Sunday. After the service ended, Rick approached us we were easily identified as newcomers because we sat in the front row and we were on time. (laughs) Rick pulled out his clipboard with newcomer questions and as we were providing him with our social security numbers and mother's maiden names, as soon as he heard PhD in UCI, he instantly walked us over to Mike Tsai. We talked briefly to him and Luan, and they invited us to be part of their life group. This was literally the first week at church. I had no business adding anything to my schedule, particularly at that time. I was taking four classes, TAing 20 hours a week, and commuting three days a week to Torrance for work. But it must have been like week two or week three. uh, I showed up in sweats, covered in dog hair, and barely awake week after week. that old life group remembers. Um, I distinctly remember one night, Pastor Jeff and Helen uh, came to life group. We had previously only attended mega churches uh, where you see the pastor from a distance. It felt really special that they wanted to know the members of the church on a personal level. During this really busy time in my life where I felt like I was in survival mode, I never felt judged, I felt accepted. I had been in women's Bible studies before, but this was different. This felt like friendship. These were the people I'd pray with, eat lunch with, and serve the community with. I belonged. Point two. Fast forward a few years, and Life Group had expanded to, welcome, uh, to, to open up for new membership. Dan and Kendra were some of those new members. Kendra and I became fast friends. During that time, we had a number of new people join the church, and Kendra had asked me if I'd like to co-lead a group with them, and our focus would be on incorporating some of the new members. I had no business leading a life group. None. So clearly they're desperate. Uh, So you can do it too. Uh, uh, You know, I kid, but but in all seriousness, i don't consider myself a biblical scholar uh, nor had i ever led a bible study let alone a life group but kendra asked me and i said yes when we first formed covid was just letting up and we had decided it was really important that we wanted a very high commitment in person group i didn't realize at the time that dan and kendra's level of high commitment and mine were two different uh were two different things but i was along for the ride over the past few years, I have experienced life and community in a different way. Going to Life Group was an event that I had committed to weeks ago, and now I'm hoping someone cancels or backs out so I can stay home. It's like seeing your favorite people every Wednesday night, and you can't wait to be hugged, welcomed, and loved. It's just a group of people going through life that you can cry with, laugh with, and serve the Lord with, and even have a talent show with. This brings me to my third And final point, back in January, I had surgery, and I was going to be down and out for a few weeks. Kendra had asked me if I wanted a meal train, and no, I did not. I thought to myself, we can afford to buy groceries or takeout, and besides, Scott didn't have surgery, and and if anybody knows us, they know Scott does the grocery shopping and the cooking. And he prefers it that way, right, babe? Yes. (laughs) And we're private people anyway, so having people dropping off handouts for us at our home felt a little uncomfortable, or so I have been told. (laughs) A few weeks later, Kendra asked again, and in a moment of weakness, I said yes. I learned a valuable lesson the week after surgery. It wasn't about if you have the resources to take care of yourself. It was about being vulnerable enough to let others in. To take care of you even if you don't think you needed it or wanted it, That week, I felt loved. We had so much food, we had to close the sign up. At one point, I was too nauseated to eat and asked Lily to not bring me lunch. She insisted on bringing something and brought ice cream and puzzles. Additionally, as I was recovering, my husband was out of town for a few days and I needed to bring the trash cans to the curb. My neighbors were driving by and stopped to ask me if I needed help. This wasn't surprising as we had come quite close with these neighbors. We had both moved in six months prior, and during that time we had doggy play dates together. We had packages, or we had gotten packages for each other when the others were out of town. And when there was leftover subs after church and we took some home, we invited them for dinner. When we walk around our neighborhood in the evenings, we know our neighbors by name. We stop and say hello. This is truly the first time I've experienced this type of community and belonging with our neighbors. When I first started going to New Life, I didn't realize that I even needed belonging. A feeling of being happy or comfortable as part of a particular group and having a relationship with other members of the group because they welcome and accept you. You see, community isn't about what you think you need. It's about what God knows you need. Sometimes it takes God using the actions of others like Rick, the Sighs, Lily, and the Chows to start the connection of belonging and the continued support and mentorship from pastors Jeff and Lewis to keep the feeling of community alive. When I started sharing today, I said I would be discussing belonging in the context of new life. But as I was preparing and reflecting back on my experiences, it's because of my belonging in new life that I have subsequently learned how to belong within a life group, within a church, within my neighborhood, and within my community. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Trish. Um, With that, let me close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Trisha's story. We thank you, O Lord, that you know what we need, as she eloquently stated. We need community. We need brothers and sisters. We need that extra layer of support. And I pray, O Lord, that you would move our hearts and that new life would be a place where people can come and feel welcomed and loved. And pointed to Jesus. Also, pray, O oh Lord, for those who are wrestling with anger, who uh, struggle with processing it, expressing it. Father, I pray that you would bring deep healing to the wounds of this world, and that you would help us free us from bitterness and resentment, and instead put on kindness, and love, and gentleness, and compassion. We thank you, O oh Lord, that even though we struggle still, you have forgiven us and that you love
0: us perfectly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.